Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today we're chatting with John Waite. He's the winner of the third series of The Great British Bake Off. While the world of reality television is often cruel and scandalous, Waite says the spirit of competition on The Great British Bake Off was nothing short of friendly. We got on so well that the production company had to ask us to stop helping each other during the technical challenge. I think that's the kind of, you know, British friendliness that we, we tried to help each other. We weren't very competitive, not until the end anyway. Also coming up, Alex I News attempts to make Joel Robichon's mashed potatoes, and we cook an Indian staple of simmered lentils with spice-infused hot butter. But first, we're chatting with Max Falkowitz. He's a food and travel writer, as well as being obsessed with Facebook culinary groups. Max, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. It's great to be here. So uh, we're talking about strange culinary Facebook groups. There's a bunch of Facebook groups in niche culinary areas. How did you find out about this? Uh, Why did you join some of these groups and and what are they talking about? So it's, I I think that the important thing to think about the internet and, and niche communities is they've always been there. There have always been nerds with particular interests that are not served by mainstream media who are looking for a way to talk with each other and kind of create their own forms of cultural production. Uh, A friend of mine who is a member of the Cooking with Clay Facebook group founded by Steve Sando, the, uh, the founder of Rancho Gordo, was sharing some posts with me about how enthusiastic members were about sharing where their pottery was from. And the, the kind of raw enthusiasm that was there was, was, was so refreshing and inspiring and just kind of delightful. And then what Facebook is very good at is recommending additional groups for you to join once you join anything. And so really, you can use that Facebook search bar to explore whatever interest you have just by typing things in and seeing where the rabbit hole leads you. So let's, let's go through some of these specifically. Uh, the rude, rebellious canners. We're talking about walking on the wild side of home canning. So these are, these are some of my favorite people on the internet because there are many home canning groups out there with people asking for general canning advice and sharing somewhat more complicated recipes. The Rude but Rebellious Canners group emerged because a couple of people were tired of posting their canned recipes and commenters leaving judgmental notes about how they were going to poison their families with botulism. That these are people who've been canning for generations. They're doing things exactly the way their their parents taught them. So they wanted to create a safe space for them to talk about canning food and the acts of putting up food in a way that, that was genuine to them without having to deal with the scolds of the more mainstream canning community. And something that's really interesting to me about these groups is you never see sharing articles or uh, links from around the web pertaining to their interest. It's always uh, it's always pure user-generated content. And to me, that says something really powerful about how these people want to do something their own way because their needs aren't being met by other sources. Let's move on to aspects with threatening auras, which I think has got to be the, the best named Facebook group of all time. You, you've been on that site. Uh, what's the concept here? I think... I, I haven't done the, the exact chronology here, but I believe Aspects with Threatening Auras is 
one of the offshoots of the vastly more popular Show Me Your Aspics group, <laughs> which is a more earnest uh, jello and savory aspic appreciation forum, which now has something like 20,000 members. I think The Guardian just did a feature on them. Um, and that's that's one where you see people sharing all types of jellos and jellies and spanking videos are kind of a norm where people take slow motion videos of spanking their jello. But this is the internet and the internet is all about niche specialties and a lot of the internet is about gross out humor. And I think what, what's what's so great about jello mold and aspects as a concept is that they, they provide this kind of uncanny valley experience for food where it's definitely recognizable as as something that we eat but it also feels very other in that hyper processed sort of 1950s culinary revolution or nadir depending on how you want to look at it and then you have all of these genuinely earnest people creating things like fetuses in a womb and sharing them earnestly is like, oh, look at this thing that I made for my gender reveal party without any sense of how horrible or upsetting they are to people. And so to, to have, a, have a place of like-minded people who, A, understand the, 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 the historical context around, um, around Jell-O and aspect-based foods, B, who delight in seeing these formats um, transgressed. And it's a group of, of really of really funny people at the border of titillating and slightly upsetting. So, I mean, the digital world is really good at going back to old food ways and recipes and techniques and bringing back some of the best things from the past using a technology that's of the future, right? And, and yeah, and and then combining them with uh, with new kinds of technology. For instance, in Thailand a few years ago, the rolled ice cream, where they where they had that ice cream base right. on the nitrogen cold anti griddle, and then you'd create it into to a sheet and roll it up. Right. Like that was a the presence of those shops everywhere in the U.S. now is a direct consequence of communities on. Facebook and YouTube and other social platforms sharing videos of that from Thailand at the source. So this isn't just preserving old traditions, but it's also creating brand new ones and it's having real effects in, in the real world. Max, uh, thank you so much for being on Milk Street. Pleasure, pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. That was food and travel writer Max Falkowitz. His article for Taste is called The Internet Safe Space for Extreme Canning. Right now, Sarah Moult and I are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. All right, Chris, before we get started here, I want to know, what are your favorite wines? Oh, that's a small question. I'm absolutely fixated, and this sounds really annoying, I'm sorry, on Sicilian wines. And let me tell you why. They're inexpensive, usually under 20 bucks a bottle, which is great, and they're lighter, and they're very good with food. I just think a big wine, unless you have beef bourguignon or something, yeah, they just take over. I don't eat really heavy foods too much anymore, so they don't really go with it too well. Yeah. What, what do you like? Well, I'm very boring. Red Bordeaux and white burgundies. But somebody else has to pay. Although I love Spanish wines. Albarino or something? Well, no, and the reds, the Riojas. Oh. And also there's some great Portuguese wines. 
you know, I've been trying to find more of those because great value, just like you said about Sicily. Well, in 30 years, all the wine-growing regions will move northward by 500 miles. So we'll have whole new wines. <laughs> we English wines will be uh, all the rage. Yeah. Okay, open up the phone lines. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Sarah and Chris. This is Lori calling from Denver. Lovely town. Love Denver. How can we help you today? So a bit of an odd question, but, you know, I'm trying to be as resourceful as possible and leave as little imprint out there as possible. So just trying to be creative with my cooking and came up with this debate with my husband on banana peels. Is there (laughs) anything besides compost that (laughs) I could utilize banana peels, maybe, I don't know, soaking in alcohol? Oh, well, that's an interesting thought, so I applaud you. But I've been thinking a lot about what to do with leftover things like carrot tops and stuff you throw away anyway, but banana peels is sort of interesting. I know that in Southeast Asia and India, they will soften the peels. I mean, what you do is you take off the peels, you scrape off the fibers or any white stuff on the inside, and then you chop it up, and then you need to soften it. You can either saute it or steam it or boil it or stew it. You can put it in chutneys. You can put it in curries. I was online the other day, and I saw something ready. Fasten your seatbelt for banana bacon. Oh, no. No, I'm, oh, I'm not kidding. This is kidding. so depressing. I saw a wonderful oh. picture. They looked absolutely yummy. So you take these banana peels, you scrape off the white part, you marinate them in something like soy sauce, smoked paprika, because that gives you the smokiness, right? For, you know, like a half an hour or up to two hours, and then you saute them until they're crispy. This sounds like the worst bacon. I think it sounds yummy. Well, wait, what is it? Okay, why do people want to mess with bacon? First of all, I applaud Lori, as you did. I think it's great. Like the sustainable kitchen concept, I really believe in that. But there is a bridge too far here. Like mango chutney, I mean, the equivalent of mango chutney, but with banana peel in it. I kind of get that. That might work. I just think bacon is, I mean. Well, we just called smoky banana peel. <laughs> I don't know. I think used in a chutney-like setting, a jam chutney. That or, I, or in a curry. That, or in a curry. I get it because it's just one part of the whole thing. But on its own and calling it bacon. All right, all right. So well, you, if I went to your house for breakfast and you made me— You'd be so excited. Bacon well, but made I'm out not, of I'm, banana This peel? is not empirical evidence. Well, let, not let's ask it. Lori. Have you tried different things? No. I mean, honestly, I've been a bit at a loss of what, but— I mean, I love making homemade chutney, so that right there sounds the most appealing. And yeah. maybe bacon isn't the right word, but maybe banana peeled jerky instead. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I have banana bacon pulled up on my computer right now, so I have to try that. Oh, yeah, please do. You, you do have to okay. try it. Lori, save me. Come back and no. tell us if you did it or not. And <laughs> we're if gonna it's call, terrible, I'll throw in the towel. We're going to call Lori back. Okay. You have to do this. And we'll call back and see what it was like. It would be a stunning culinary reversal. Right. If this turned out to be great bacon. Yeah. Okay. Or a great yummy thing all by itself. More to come. Certainly appreciate you too. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for calling. Lori. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. 9843 or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lily. Hi, Lily. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Berkeley, California. 
Oh, lucky you. Yes. You live right around the corner from Chez Panisse or something like that? Yeah, not too far away. <laughs> I don't know how I knew that, but I did. Okay, how, <laughs> how can we help you? My question has to do with cilantro, which is an herb that shows up in a lot of recipes, particularly, obviously, Mexican and Thai, and it's something that I can't eat. So I'm wondering if you have some suggestions about how to cook around that. Well, the obvious replacement's parsley. That's what everyone will tell you. But, of course, parsley doesn't taste anything like cilantro. I would suggest you try some other fresh herbs like marjoram or something like that and just find an herb you like, and then you can mix it with parsley if you like. I mean, that's what I would do because I think trying to Ah. imitate cilantro is impossible. But parsley is a base and then add some other herb you particularly like. It's just a go-to mixture because, you know, parsley's cheap and you need a little bit of the other herb. That's what I would do. Or just use parsley because... Oh, that's so interesting, yeah. Yeah, cilantro, cilantro. Right. And now Sarah, my co-host, is looking at me. No, I just... Well, I don't disagree, but you mentioned <laughs> Mexican and Thai. The other two fresh herbs that are used sometimes in conjunction with cilantro are mint and basil. Mm-hmm. Although they're mm-hmm. more similar in flavor than either one of them are to cilantro, meaning to each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they could easily replace each other. But the fact of the matter is, if cilantro worked in a Thai recipe, so would mint or basil. It's a totally different flavor. There's no way you're going to replicate cilantro. You shouldn't even try. You probably hate it because it tastes like soap. Right. So I would go with one of the other two in Thai recipes. And I would agree with Chris about Mexican you know, using parsley as a base, but then adding an herb like oregano, oregano, which is often used in Mexican cooking. So look to the other fresh herbs that are used in the cuisine when you're trying to replace. A third place that cilantro is used a lot is in Middle Eastern. And there I think I would go with just straight Mm -hmm. parsley. What do you think, Chris? Or maybe dill? straight parsley. I think in Middle Eastern cooking, I would just use parsley, but I might add some other spice to it. Cumin? Uh, yeah, coriander, for example, like some whole coriander you toast for a couple minutes and then grind. You know, parsley, mm-hmm. like in tabbouleh, mm-hmm. parsley is, is used in everything as well. Well, again, mint yeah. would work there and too. Mint, mint, yeah. mint would work in Middle Eastern as well, I think. M- yeah. Mint's always, and it's used a lot also in uh, Mexican cooking too. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, those are good suggestions. We don't disagree. Right. All right. right. Oh my gosh. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is that it's actually a slightly different mixture depending on where in the world you're cooking. Sure. With Mexican food, it sounds like parsley and oregano is yes. kind of maybe a nice idea. Whereas if it's Thai, you might want to use mint or basil. Correct. Yeah. And mix it up also, I suppose, and see what, you know, how that works out. Yes. So, but there's always parsley. As you said, it's growing out back. So <laughs> okay. um, good. Thank you. That you're was welcome. really, really helpful. I really appreciate it. Sure. Our pleasure. Thanks, Thanks, Lily. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're going behind the scenes of the Great British Bake Off with Series 3 winner, John Waite. That and more after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Great British Bake Off winner John Waite. His new book is called A Flash in the Pan. John, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Um, I love your book because it's not overly enthusiastic or uh, paints the salad days as being uh, so wonderful. You, you write, as a child, I loathed the idea and practice of eating together. It was a time of forced family, which I felt was more symbolic than meaningful. So, so many people write about their their joyful experiences around the table. You take a, a, a little darker, more interesting point of view. Could you just elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, as a child, I knew, you know, I was on the on the verge of coming out as gay, and I always knew that eating together with my family was a difficult thing because it was a symbol of of a, a, a community that really I didn't see would continue to exist for my life because I always thought that as a gay man I would grow up very alone. Hmm. And so dinner times as a family were just sort of shrouded with that awful premonition that I'd end up on my own like a hermit. And so it was just a time that I really, really felt uncomfortable for, for me was food, was dinner time. So you then at some point, I gather, reconnected around the dinner table. In other words, the dinner table now has become again a happy place for you. It has. It really has. I mean, I met my partner 11 years ago and the thing that he loved the most about me on our first date was the amount of food I put away. We were in this in this <laughs> bar, and we'd I'd already we already had dinner separately. We we weren't meant to be eating, but we went to a bar in Manchester, and I ordered a platter of hummus and and dried cured meats, and he didn't have anything to eat, but I ate enough for about twenty people, <laughs> and uh, he was very impressed by that because northern people, people from the north of England, that is, uh, they like the food, um, and the sloppier the better. So yeah, it was kind of around a dinner table, a very impromptu dinner table that I realized that I didn't have to be alone. So I came back to food. Well, food brought me back to uh, feeling connected again. You, you mentioned people in the north of England like their food, the sloppier, the better. <laughs> uh, do, do, do different people in different regions have a different point of view about eating and food? I guess, yeah. I mean, I think in the south, people are a little bit more, they don't really have gravy on the chips, let's say. Whereas in the north, <laughs> we like a lot of gravy and mushy peas and we eat it with cheap crap white bread that we've buttered <laughs> very thickly you know the the there's a danish or i think it's a scandinavian word tradsmoor and it means it literally translates the the, the grooves that your teeth leave in in butter that's so th- thickly smeared on bread that's a great we can easily concept. we can equate we can equate with that yeah it's such a beautiful word and was northerns we like to uh, <laughs> we like to have our white bread buttered and to dip into our gravy like well maybe i'm Maybe I have ancestors from the north of England. I do, too. You must. <laughs> I must. Um, how did you get from a 10-year-old who felt lonely at the dinner table to the point where you ended up on the Great British Bake Off in 2012? What, what was the culinary arc there? I guess food, even though it was a great uh, lever between, you know, it drove a lever in, in my emotional state of mind. It made me feel quite lonely as a child. I think I latched onto it because it was the only identity I had, I guess, or the only connection I had with my mum. Because when mum and dad divorced, she and I used to bake all the time. And from from that moment, food was a very therapeutic, medicinal thing for me. You know, it really solved 
uh, a lot of my darkest bouts of depression, it really helped to lift me out of it. Because I find that baking particularly over, over cookery, not exclusively, but particularly for me, is, um, is very constructive. It allows you to turn a very destructive uh, energy into something constructive. You know, Winston Churchill used to paint and build walls for his depression. And I, uh, not that I want to compare myself in any way to Winston, because I'll never achieve anything as great as he did. But, you know, the, the principle of creativity when it's trying to get out of a bout of depression is a very important thing. And also food is a social thing. If you make a batch of brownies, you really shouldn't eat them all yourself. You should get out there and share them with your friends. And so, yeah, so I kind of latched onto food to get me out of that uh, darkness, even though it was, it, it's what made the darkness very obvious for me, that loneliness that I thought I would uh, encounter. It actually was my um, life raft out of that loneliness. So you go on, uh, you ended up on the Great British Bake Off you win, and and you you talk a lot about this in your book. You say the person you were before the show is the best version of you. I, I thought that was a really interesting comment. Yeah, I mean the show, the show. There was no aftercare from the Bake Off. Um, you know, I was a twenty three year old lad who was until then really had grown up on a farm, went to university, but hadn't really seen the world. And all of a sudden, I was getting a six figure book deal and and crazy offers. And nobody from the show said, are you okay with this? Do you know what to do? Do you need any advice? Do you need counselling? And so that's why I wrote those words, because, you know, I kind of forgot who I was after Bake Off. Being presented with TV opportunities and money and, and freebies and holidays, it, it goes to your head as a 23-year-old lad. Luckily, you know, as, as I said, I come from a farming family and my mother would never ever let me get completely lost and get let my head get too far in the clouds she she clamped and stapled and nailed my feet to the ground and i'm so grateful for that so what just i've never been on a show like that could you just describe what actually what it's like from your perspective from day 1 coming on to that show in 2012 what was the experience like behind the scenes it was busy i mean it was very long-winded we'd get there at about seven o'clock in the morning um, to, the, to the studio. Well, it wasn't the studio, it was a tent in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we get to the, to the tent and we were all really excited. It was a, it was a really fun process. Um, a lot of waiting around, you know, you'd wait for the presenters, you'd wait for the production team to be ready. We weren't allowed our phones while we were filming, which is obviously, you'd expect that. But there was a great deal of, of friendliness um, behind the scenes between the bakers we got on so well that the production company had to ask us to stop helping each other during the technical challenge mm. because we were trying to get each other I think that's the kind of you know uh, British friendliness that we we tried to try to help each other we weren't very competitive not until the end anyway mm. so I really enjoyed it it was pretty much it was after Bake Off that I found it to be a bit of a struggle uh, let's talk about recipes uh, Eaton Mess is a famous English dessert uh, not yeah. known very well over here. Wh why has Eaton Mess survived? Wh what is it about it that's particularly loved by the English? And, and why don't you describe describe it first, if you would? So Eaton Mess is a mixture of uh, broken up meringue, uh, whipped cream, and then usually a little bit of sugar, maybe maybe icing sugar or confectioner sugar, as you guys call it, and uh, some fruit like raspberries or berries. 
And I think the reason it's survived here is because it's so slapdash. You know, our desserts are pretty hodgepodge. We've got trifle, we've got bread and butter pudding, we've got um, treacle tart, which is uses leftover breadcrumbs. Our desserts would probably make a French person scoff, but <laughs> they survive for us because they're so simple. Our food, again, is based on good ingredients prepared with love and perhaps a fairly slapdash uh, nature. I like that term, slapdash, maybe. Has anyone ever written, written the slapdash cookbook? That's probably a pretty good name. No, but I might do it. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I might call it the slapdash cookbook for the lazy <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chocolate olive oil mousse made with mayonnaise. Yeah. Don't start. <laughs> now, I, well, look, I, man, you, it's in your book, so I, you, it's fair game. No, olive oil, olive oil, um is great in with chocolate because you get that peppery bitterness from olive oil and um the mayonnaise is there because it offers a kind of egginess without and, and an egg, eggy savoriness so you've got the savoriness of mayonnaise along with the qualities that egg would bring the mousse and it, it works so so well of course you've still got the aeration from the from the egg whites right. um but the mayonnaise makes it kind of slimy would be an off-putting word but it gives it that sort of <laughs> coat tonguing fabulousness, shall we say, that you want to get from a mousse. It makes it linger, linger on the palate to be a bit wanky. <laughs> so you teach cooking. Have you yeah. figured out why some people are able to learn how to cook fairly readily and others aren't? Is it fear? Is it something else? I think it's just the ability to process instruction. I find cookery is like learning how to tie your shoelace. It's a very difficult thing to... If you were to try and explain on a piece of paper how to tie someone's shoelace, um, it's quite a difficult thing. And I, th I find that as a food writer, I've got to try and be get the information across in the most basic way while maintaining a certain integrity that the food deserves. And so I find that cookery lessons are a great way because food is such a visual thing. And I can also talk to my students about when you brown butter, for example, it's not just about how the butter looks or how it smells, but it's also about how it sounds, you know. As you're evaporating the moisture from the butter, it's like the pitter-patter of rainfall on a cold tin roof. But then all of a sudden the rain just stops, and that's when you'll get the smell of hazelnuts. And for people to learn that in my little kitchen, it's such an intimate thing. And I hope that people, when they see it happening, when they hear it happening, when they smell it, will always know what to look for and what to listen for and what to sniff out for. You mentioned something really interesting, which I believe in too, which is the sound of food cooking. Could we talk about that? Yeah. So, for example, when, you, when you're cooking onions, when you're frying onions, as you put them in the pan with a bit of salt, they'll sound like almost like a, a slightly wet bubble. And that's when you know the heat's, the heat's good, you've got the heat right. But as that sound becomes more of a dry, crackly sound, which, you know, if you close your eyes, it threatens to burn then you know that the pan's too hot and you've got to turn the pan down. But no, the sound of food is important. Like when you're baking a cake, for example, when it's just about set, the cake's just about baked, it'll sing very, very delicately to you. It's like a little, like a... Pa, 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 pa. And when you get that, you know that it's just about ready. Do, do that one more time. I, I, that's new to me. I love this. It's like a... a pa, 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 pa. <laughs> that's good. It's, honestly, you should try it. When you bake a cake next, Okay. when the timer goes off, just just raise the cake to your ear. Not too close. You don't want to leave without your earlobes. <laughs> but raise it to your ear and it will sing to you and it will say, I'm ready, you know. And and obviously it'll smell ready and you could skewer test it and drive ah. a cocktail stick in there. But listen to it. 
And it sounds stupid, it sounds pretentious, but it's true. It will sing to you. When the Cake Sings, there's another title for it. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll write that book. Um, so I'm, I've now hired you uh, to st- with an unlimited budget to start a new television cooking show. Do you have, do you have a show in mind? I do. Uh, that's so funny. I wanted I wanted to do something about ki- like the kitchen island, for example, is is such a great title. Or vote him off the kitchen island, or kicked off the kitchen island. And it would be great to have a cookery show that's based on an island somewhere, a really remote island, and people have to forage for what they've got on the island. Um, obviously, there'd be a bit of you know the production company would need to plant a few yams here and there, maybe, uh, but they have to forage this island to try and create meals for the judges who then vote on who's the best meal is. And then if they don't make it, they're kicked off the island and they have to drown in the shark-infested waters or at least get a life raft home. <laughs> that, <laughs> but I've thought about well, I, it. And, I, I like the fact there's a little darkness left in you. That's good. I like that. That's good. Oh, listen, yeah. I, the, where there should be a soul, there's darkness in me, believe <laughs> me. So, I, uh, But no, I'm glad that I've committed it now to a podcast because if it happens, I can, I can make it happen now. So you sound like... Things for you started off when you were 10. Uh, you know, life was pretty dark. Uh, you, you were looking towards a very happy future. But it seems like you have, through thick and thin, sort of got to a place that you didn't think you'd get to, right? Yeah, no. On my 30th birthday this year, I was very emotional because I honestly thought that I would have killed myself by now. I mean, um, the reason I went, to, I say it with such nonchalance because it's just a fact of my life. But Audre Lorde once wrote that self-care is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation. Mm. And I think that's so true. You've got to look after yourself. As a depressive, I believe in trying your best to get out of the darkness. Sometimes it's impossible. And woe betide anybody else ever tells you that. You know, you've got to, you've got to say that to yourself. But you have to, you have to try. You know, it's about putting things into perspective. We are merely ghosts in our own houses. We're not going to be here forever. And I think it's important to remember that. John, it's been uh, just a great pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you. That was John Waite. He's a baker and also owns a cooking school in Lancashire, England. His new book is called A Flash in the Pan, Simple, Speedy Stovetop Recipes. Time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Dal Tarka. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So you recently got back from Mumbai. Mm-hmm. Um, you were tracking down butter chicken, vindaloo, some of the usual suspects. Yep. But you came across Dal Tarka, which turned out to be one of the highlights of your trip. What is Dal Tarka? Well, first of all, something I was not expecting to appreciate or be impressed by, but kind of blew me away. At its core, this is Indian comfort food. It's, it's a yellow lentils that are cooked down to an almost porridge consistency. And then they're combined with a kind of a seasoning condiment that has ginger and tomatoes and whole spices and, and garlic and onion. And you kind of stir that in at the very end. And the result is this really layered, textured dish with lots of flavor and lots of crunch and lots of tomatoes. And it's really an incredible package. 
So the tarka, which is a, a flavored oil, could yes. you just explain that? Because that's something that's used across Indian cooking, right? It is, it is. And, and so let me back us up, because the dal is the yellow lentils, which I said are cooked down to a porridge, and then the tarka is what you season those lentils with, because on their own, the lentils don't have a whole lot of flavor. Tarka is built, and so you build it by first starting with your fat, in this case, ghee or clarified butter. Then they add whole spices, and the whole spices are simmered so that they retain their texture but, and their crunch, but the flavor comes out. Then you add uh, kind of wet seasonings, as they call them, you know, the onions, the ginger, the garlic, the fresh chilies, things like that. Then you add your ground spices, which you wouldn't have wanted to add earlier because those would burn. And then finally, you kind of finish it off with any, any final ingredients, in this case, tomatoes. And may I ask where you found this? Was it a roadside food cart or something? It or was roadside, it? but it was not a food cart. I was wandering, as I am wont to do, and I came across a temple where uh, teenage monks were washing the white marble statues with milk, of course. Of course. And they invited me out back to their canteen, and in trip typical canteen fashion, you know, you get a, a stainless steel tray and they plop this mush on your tray, and, you know, I wasn't expecting much. But when I dug in, like I say, it was such a, a, a layering of contrasting flavors and textures and sweet and creamy and rich and, and pops of spice and heat. It really, really impressed me. Yeah, I just have to say, the reason that travel is so important is what you don't expect, right? You weren't Absolutely. expecting this and Absolutely. you end up with this really easy, great recipe, which takes what? 10 minutes to make the tarka? Yeah, absolutely. Well, some yep. So, JM, thank you. Del Tarka, which is not just a great recipe for yellow lentils with spices, but it's a way of adding flavor to almost any dish. Thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Del Tarka at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we chat with Alex I News about his pursuit to replicate Joel Rubichon's famous mashed potatoes. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. 
You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Most Day Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Malt and I will be taking a few more of your cooking questions. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of, uh, of phone calls? Yeah, let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Charles Reed from Southerton, Pennsylvania. How are you? I'm doing very well. I have a question about cream sauces. Okay. My question is about adding wine to cream-based sauces to ensure that the sauce doesn't break. I've had one or two bad experiences that I'm attributing to either not reducing or maybe adding it at the wrong time. And I wanted to get some advice before I try to pull off a good cream sauce for a big dinner party. Well, regardless of cream sauce, we recommend that you reduce wine separately in a saucepan at a sort of barely bubble, like 180 degrees, 175 degrees, mm-hmm. let it reduce down, might take half an hour, reduce it by 70, 80%. So you have a concentrated wine, mm. which does two things. You get better flavor than just adding wine directly because it's more concentrated. Yes. And secondly, you will not get the curdling. That'll also solve that problem. The other thing is the heavier, that is the fattier the dairy, the less likely it's going to denature and turn and bind together and curdle. So half and half, for example, is more likely to denature and curdle than heavy cream. That's another thing to consider. But the key of the wine is even with a stew, without dairy, you're going to get a much fresher flavor and it's a much better way of uh, dealing with wine. We find when you cook meat and wine, it just... It dries just, out the just, meat. It's just thin and, yeah. and vinegary yeah, almost. It's, yeah, it's kind of nasty. I wanted to ask a question, Charles. How do you make your cream sauce? Are you thickening it at all, or is it just cream and milk? 
typically, uh, I'll give you the example of a chorizo cream sauce that I would like to add some albarino. I would do that reduction. But other ingredients, obviously the cream, a little bit of chorizo sausage. At the end, a small amount of finely grated Parmesan or Manchego. So typically, that cheese would give you a little bit of thickening, but I'm not looking to add a roux in this case. I'm not looking to add cornstarch or anything like that. But you did have cream, and you also had another dairy. What other kind of dairy in there, or just cream? Cream and a little bit of a grated hard cheese at the very end. end. Okay. Um, Because cream, you can actually boil, and it will thicken. So probably you're right. It was the acid added at the wrong time and not reduced. Boy, that sounds yummy, though. Well, Chorizo there is, and um, cream. Mm-hmm. There is a recipe I just picked up. I was in Bologna in September. Just a quick idea for you. Reduce cream down for about 10 minutes at a very low simmer and then put a whole ton yes. of grated Parmesan whisked into it. And you can put a little bit of lemon juice yes. in if you like. And that's a Parmesan cream sauce, which they use on everything like lasagnas, et cetera. It's just phenomenal. Sounds yummy. Uh, and it doesn't break, and it's 10 minutes. Right. That sounds exquisite. And that would even be great for people here with celiac, et cetera. Perfect. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yes. The reason I asked you about thickening is because if you had thickened it, it would be more stable also, you know, like with a roux. But mm. I applaud you for not thickening it because, you know, just reduced heavy <laughs> cream is so much tastier than thickened with a roux. Charles, thank you for calling. Yes. Have a good afternoon. Yeah, you Okay, take you care. too. This is Most Day Radio. If you have a cooking question, Sarah and I may have an answer. Please give us a call, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, and how can we help you today? Well, firstly, I'm so excited to be talking to you guys. Thanks for taking the call. I am a new mother, and we, uh, my husband and I, are really trying to integrate adult food into his diet. We want to make sure that he has a wonderful palate of, of spices, and we don't want him to just be eating chicken fingers and fries and things like that. I'm an avid cook, and we are finding that, uh, you know, he probably will eat spaghetti bolognese, and that's pretty much it. So. I'm finding that I'm making dinner for myself and my husband and a dinner for my son, Henry. And I know that you both have children. I'm wondering how you approach to that. And uh, we're kind of in that phase where we're going from puree to solids. Is there any tips and tricks you can give a new mother? <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations. Secondly, I love the name Henry. Thirdly, I guarantee you Chris and I are going to disagree. So I, I'm going to go first here. I think what you can do is expose them to different things. What I did with my kids is made sure they had choices. Now, I don't mean making two entrees. I would make one entree. And then I would have different options in terms of the sides. You know, I always had a starch because kids will do that. And then you can gradually start introducing new things to the basics, but just having choices. Um, Just to make it easy on yourself, always have a couple of frozen vegetables, frozen corn, frozen peas, which almost all kids like. And now Chris is going to say something completely different. Yeah, I totally disagree. So how old is Henry? He's 16 months. Okay, well, I, I just spoke to an expert about kids learning flavors. And they said something really interesting. They said when they're very young, like uh, Henry's age, they are open to new flavors. The first time you give them something, they'll spit it out. If it's different, if you go back and keep giving it to them, they'll start eating it. 
So you need to persist a little bit. But 16 months is a good age. My two and a half, three-year-old is at the point where that isn't going to happen. They just get locked in. So early on, you can expose them to foods, but repeat it. And then when they get a little bit older, they're not. I have four older kids. And what I did was a little different than Sarah. When they got to the point where five, six years old, we only made dinner. We didn't have, you know, two dinners. And they could eat the dinner or not. And if they didn't, we had fruit. That was it. So, you know, you can have an apple, you can have a banana, you can have a pear. You don't have to worry about nutrition. Your kids are going to get plenty of nutrition. But I would not cook a second meal. I would just cook what you have. And, you know, and Sarah's right. Maybe they'll just eat the potatoes or the rice or they won't eat everything. But early on, you have an opportunity around one when they start eating solids, one to two. They're right in the sweet spot where if you keep at it, they might be able to even like slightly bitter things or sour things as well. Yeah, I agree. Very good. That's our combined wisdom about raising children. Okay, Ashley. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. That's so helpful. Thank you. This is Milk Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Julia. Instead of using the edge of your knife to scrape newly chopped items into a bowl, turn the knife 180 degrees and scrape it using the spine. That way you won't dull your knife. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, what have you been up to lately? So uh, lately, I've been uh, attempting something quite fun, I must say, but also a bit daunting. I've been attempting to recreate the world's most famous mashed potatoes. You might be familiar with Joël Robuchon's mashed potato. For, for the person out there who uh, don't know who Joël Robuchon is, Joël Robuchon is a French chef. He is the most Michelin star chef ever. He had 32 stars at, at the same times. He died in 2018, but he left a legacy. He was Eric Rippert's mentor. He was considered by Gordon Ramsay and by Thomas Keller to be an absolute master when it comes to cooking. He was also, I have to interject, Jean Robuchon was also a nice guy. I mean, he, he didn't have a big ego. Yes. He, he just considered himself an ordinary cook, I believe. Oh, he, he was lovely. And he's very known for his world-famous mashed potatoes, a creamy, very, very creamy, very luxurious French-style pomme puree. So there is a video online on YouTube. That's how I learn all my cooking skills, basically. Uh, <laughs> that, that sums up his method on how to do it. So I watched it a few times. I knew I needed to start with cold water instead of boiling water because it's a better way to come up with an even temperature in the end. I also knew something else, that you shouldn't be using a, a food processor to make a right. potato mash. I don't know if you have done that before, Chris. Yes, it's, uh, it'll destroy, it'll make them gluey and, and nasty. Yeah. Exactly. You're basically releasing all the starch when right. doing this, so it's making it gluey. So, so I knew that, and I used a potato ricer. So I thought, well, this is going to be a very short subject for me. In fact, when I tasted the mash in the end, I thought, well, it's not bad. It's, it's fluffy mash like my mom would make, 
but, but I was quite far away from, from the texture I had seen on the YouTube video. You know, velvety and smooth. So I thought, well, it's going to be an easy fix. <laughs> For my first experiment, I thought about adding more fat to it. We're talking about French cuisine, okay? Yeah, but adding more fat to mashed potatoes is a dicey proposition. I thought, let's just do half and half. So I'm going to go half potatoes and almost half butter. Oh. And in the end, I had an amazing texture, something extremely creamy, velvety, smooth. But I had created another problem. Problem is that it tasted like butter. Right. It did not taste like 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 potatoes no more. And can, 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 I, can I ask you a question though? Yes. What do the French use? Do you use russet potatoes? I mean, what do you have as a as a potato? Let's start with that. That that is a very nice segue into my second experiment. I thought about exactly what you said, potato varieties. Right. I must have used the wrong one. So I'm a simple guy. <laughs> Alex, I'm, you're I'm not a geeky simple when it comes guy to food. at all. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But I, I made a mistake, I think, because at the grocery store, I bought what was advertised as potatoes for mash. Right. And in this case, usually what they call potatoes for mash are starchy potatoes. Right. So in France, our starchy potatoes are binger, for example, but yours would be russet. Right. They are the recommended ones. Then I watched that Joël Robuchon video one more time and I noticed something. His potatoes were very, very small. Hmm. And I found out that he was using rat potatoes. Now, these are heirloom fingerling potatoes and it turns out that these potatoes have the lowest starch content huh. ever. He gave the reason why he uses rat potatoes. And he said, well, they are not made for mash. Absolutely not. It's not easy to work with these. But they taste the best. And I thought, wow. So, so, so he just took the best tasting potato and then find a way to make this work huh. from a process point of view. And that's why also, if you were to watch that video where he makes his world famous mash, he whisked them very intensely. And I thought, this looks wrong on every level. But in fact, since they are so low in starch, it makes sense. So I give it a try. I use some fingerlings, rat potatoes. I followed everything to the letter. And then in the end, I had the experience. Like, honestly, I never had mashed potatoes before something extremely creamy because of this new addition of the potato variety i could cut down a bit on butter so i went 30 percent butter instead of 50 50. this is <laughs> so, why wait a minute wait this is why we love the french you you cut back on the butter from 50 percent to 30 percent yeah, exactly i just love but, that but you're, you're not supposed to eat, to eat like a bowl full of of mashed potatoes it's just like a a little creamy rich side that that will perf perfectly with any meat or any vegetable no 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 here in america you, you don't have a little <laughs> tiny four tablespoons you have a huge mound on the plate i grew up with mashed potatoes and roast beef i mean that's uh, come on it's it's not you know this is not an appetizer yeah you're you're, you're, you're right and and and, and in, in my defense i would say that I, I did the same as a kid with my mom but in this case i would suggest right. at least to cut down on butter even more did the Robichaud recipe also use dairy, like cream or something as well? I, I mean, he used milk, obviously, right. to loosen the texture. 
So once uh, the potatoes are nicely mixed, you incorporate butter, and then to adjust the texture to your liking, you add milk. I see. Now, it comes down to something, I think, that is very personal in the end. Is that the best mash in the world? Well, maybe. As for many, the best mash I ever had is my mom's mash. That fluffy mash right. that holds itself together and stands proud in the plate. The right picture for the job is the one from, you know, the movie from uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, Encounter of the Third Type. Yeah, yeah Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where he takes the mashed potatoes, the kid does. Yeah. Eggs. Right. That, that, that's my go-to mash. That's the mash I remember, the one that, that gave me emotion as a kid. Now, I, I can't argue that uh, Joël Robuchon's mash was three Michelin star and, and, and very luxurious and, and probably very expensive to, to buy at his restaurant as well. But I guess at least it gave me a good understanding on how much the quality of the initial ingredient matter. Well, you're now our, I guess we could say, along with Eric Repair and some others, you're now a protege of Jean Roubouchon. You did so uh, <laughs> off YouTube, but but nonetheless, uh, you now are one of Jean Roubouchon's sous chefs. I would, lo- I would love that. I would love that too. Alex, uh, keep putting the butter in the mashed potatoes. Uh, that's so French. It's a good idea too. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. Joel Robichon was the opposite of a celebrity chef. Yes, he accumulated 32 Michelin stars among his worldwide restaurants, which is still a record. And his first restaurant, Jamin, received three Michelin stars in pretty short order. He was also named the best restaurant in the world by the International Herald Tribune. Yet Robichon viewed himself as a worker and not really a celebrity. He enjoyed a good rotisserie chicken. He loved simple food. He did not like dishes with more than three flavors. And his most famous dish was mashed potatoes. For Robichon, cooking was always about the food and never about the fame. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, browse our online store, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, instant pot cooking at the speed you need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Claff. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.